Welcome to the Black Theater History Podcast, where we seek to celebrate the people, the plays, and the rich stories of the American theater's African-American history makers. I'm KB Sane. In this episode, we're celebrating the work, achievements, and passion of Dr. Indira Duaro. Dr. Indira Duaro is a producer, director, educator, scholar, and a nonprofit arts leader who has worked with institutions across the country and around the world. It is her passion to explore the complex intersections between community, performing arts, and the topics of our time. And through her leadership positions, she continues to explore models of institutional thrivability in the 21st century. Dr. Edwaru has received numerous awards and honors for her work, including being tapped as a Fulbright Scholar in 2004 when she lived in Ethiopia with her daughter to conduct research with a collective of Somali women and girls. Dr. Edwaru joined Bedford-Stuyvesant Restoration Corporation in 2015 to provide the artistic and curatorial vision, strategic direction, fundraising leadership, management, and partnership expertise for one of Brooklyn's cultural anchors, Restoration Art. With a team of dynamic arts leaders committed to revolutionary art making, Dr. Eduardo has reimagined a dynamic 21st century creative complex with the Adelco and Obie award-winning Billie Holiday Theater as the artistic centerpiece. With a deepened commitment to folding community into world-class artistic discovery and storytelling, this creative complex houses multiple performance spaces, a youth arts academy, the historic Skylight Gallery, and hosts many institutions and residents, including the Frank Silvera Writers' Workshop, among others. The Billies' past two seasons have been nominated for a total of 18 Adelco Awards, and they've taken the top honors three of those times. Indira stays busy, and so I was fortunate that she made the time for us to talk. We recorded our conversation in the Billies' dressing rooms, and you'll hear the sounds of set construction for the world premiere of Jane Sheldon's Reparations in the background. Well, Dr. Edward, thank you so much for sitting down with me. I appreciate your time and your flexibility as we've made our way through the space. Um, I wanted to start by asking you about your initial journey as a performer, as a dancer and an actress, then as a scholar. Uh, would you let us know with whom you worked and studied and who the people were that molded you and helped you become who you are now? Sure. I mean, I'm so happy to sit down with you today. Thank it's you. just really wonderful to have this time together. I started life very early on in a home that celebrated the arts. My mother was a pianist, mm -hmm. and she had also, in addition to being a really accomplished pianist, she had done dancing and theater as a student in high school. And so we were always being dragged to see arts and experience arts. And so it was very normal for me to want to study an instrument, to be a part of a theater that was in our church, in our community, mm -hmm. and also to start thinking about all the twirling that I was doing in the house, <laughs> that it may lead to something more and starting to study dance. But early on, it really was very informal. There were five children in my home. And we came from a Where working did you class. Fall in the line? I'm in the I was in the middle. Okay. And I was a perfectly middle child because my sister is seven years older, my brother is a year and a half older, my other sister's a year and a half younger, and my other brother's seven years younger. So I'm oh in the, and it's a boy and girl on each side. 
So I'm perfectly balanced. I was perfectly balanced and in the middle, but we all studied an instrument or were singers. My first formal education in the arts was as a flautist, and then I went on to study music all through high school and then do an undergrad in classical flute performance. While at the same time in high school and college, I was dancing in the dance company and was rehearsal director for the dance company, but then doing all the theater productions in high school <laughs> and college too. So as soon as I was out of class, I was running from an orchestra rehearsal to a theater rehearsal to a dance rehearsal. So it was, I look back and I wonder how I, managed all of that, except I think it was really the precursor for how I approach the arts, which is very holistically, mm -hmm. that I use all of those tenets of the different disciplines to inform my work in the disciplines. I think it lends itself to a musicality in, in my choreography and in my directing. I think that my musicianship is very much informed mm -hmm. by the expressiveness of, of theater and storytelling. So they all inform one another and I think fit in a very uh, sort of powerful hybridity. I would say that my flute teacher was Patricia Werrell. She was a renowned and well-known flautist in the Virginia area. And I studied dance with Rodney Williams, mm -hmm. who to this day is probably one of the most profound mentors that I've ever had. He's still a professor at Longwood University. Mm -hmm. And then theater, I studied with Pamela Arkin, Joyce Carter, and then Ernie McClintock. And right. I studied both theater as an actor and directing with Ernie. Each of those mentors that I've named in many ways have been life-changing. Mm -hmm. Did you work with Ernie in Virginia? Or I worked here with Ernie in, in Richmond, Virginia. I was teaching school there, and I was teaching a dance class at the community center, and Ernie was teaching theater at the community center in Richmond. After I would teach, I would take a dance class. With what center? It was the Richmond Community Center. Okay. It was uh, Parks and Recreation, mm -hmm. uh, Richmond Parks and Recreation. After I taught, I would then take a class. And I was taking a dance class, and this man walked up to me after the dance class, and he says, do you know Alice Walker and Toni Morrison, Sonia Sanchez, Gloria Naylor? And he started listing these amazing women writers, and I'm nodding along, and he says, do you know Zora Neale Hurston and Langston Hughes? And I'm saying, yes, yes. And he says, I'm bringing a show to the National Black Theater Festival, um, and I would like you to choreograph it. Hmm. And I thought, oh, yeah, sure, I do. I do. I choreograph stuff all the time. I've been choreographing since I was in high school. I did not know who Ernie was. What I, a blessing, though. I did not know. And... In some ways, it was great that I did not know. And what was the project? It was to Langston with Love and yes. the Collard Green, Cornbread, Contributions by Cornbread Divas. And that year, it was 1995, Ernie brought a repertory company to the theater. And mm -hmm. three pieces were done, two of which were to Langston with Love and the Collard Green. And I performed in two and choreographed two. Ernie just knew how to stretch artists and push artists and his passion was so contagious i just remember always one feeling inadequate 
but being so inspired by the bar he set that I was constantly pushing myself to be adequate. And his passion for black people and black storytelling Mm -hmm. and global ways of thinking about ourselves as a people was really quite pioneering and really quite inspiring for me because I was at a moment in my life by early 20s where I was trying to make sense of the world. So to bump into an Ernie when one is in their very early 20s is is quite a bumping into. It has shaped everything that I am as an artist who gets to tell stories. I don't know that anyone had a bigger imagination in terms of being able to build worlds. I'm smiling and I know no one can see this. I also met Ernie in my early 20s. And while I didn't have the working relationship with him that many others did, his legacy and the artists that he bestowed upon the Richmond community uh, helped me become who I am in more ways than I could begin. So as people hear my smile and my voice, I really can't see it. But uh, I'm so glad that we've had a chance to celebrate his his legacy in this way. It does live on. Your work, you're talking about Ernie's work in this kind of global way, and and I I think it might be our segue into the work that you're doing here at the Billy Holiday Theater. We are currently in the dressing rooms of the theater, but we are within a much larger space. Could you talk for a moment about what exists through restoration art right now in its evolution? Yes, restoration, uh, formerly Bedford-Stuyvesant Restoration Corporation, Uh, was founded in 1967. In 1966, there were national race riots happening across the nation in urban hotspots, and Bedford-Stuyvesant was one of those hotspots. And so Robert F. Kennedy visited Bedford-Stuyvesant at the invitation of community activists so that he could see front and center the disinvestment of a community that brought such cultural richness to the national story. What we did as an institution was inspire um, not only Robert F. Kennedy, but Jacob Javits to form the very first community development corporation in the nation. In 1967, over 3,000 models have spawned from this one model. The very first president was Franklin A. Thomas, and Franklin A. Thomas was a young attorney who came in and had a vision for how a community could be revitalized from the inside out. He understood that in order for neighborhood revitalization, the arts and culture needed to be an integral part of that. So he founded the Billie Holiday Theater and tapped Herbert Scott Gibson. Mm -hmm. The theater was founded in 1972, five years following the formation of restoration. But the theater was not the very first artistic entity. The Skylight Gallery was under the leadership of artist Teddy Gunn. Teddy Gunn is a well-respected Brooklyn visual artist. He was also able to bring in other Brooklyn artists like Emmett Wigglesworth and Otto Meals. He showcased the work of Jacob Lawrence and Romare Bearden at a Mm. time when spaces weren't necessarily as open to the curation of artists of African descent. And so the Skylight Gallery formed, the Billie Holiday Theater formed after that, soon to follow in the 1990s was the Youth Arts Academy, Mm -hmm. which reaches hundreds of students annually through instruction in theater and dance and drumming. One of the things that you have been able to do in the last few years has resulted in 
massive increases in audience sizes. I think it's more than doubled under your tenure, coming in with 40,000 audience members a year and now something over 80,000 and looking at over 100% increase in, <laughs> in, in income and, and you know, divesting what resources um, exist and how the entities are making money. And I want to celebrate all of that, but I also want to celebrate your commitment to bringing world-class art to a community. I'm curious about how you have been able to drive a move from community-based artists to world-class artists that inform and reflect and serve the community. So I want to respond to the second part of the question first and then move to the, the first part of the question. I believe that world-class artists have always been a part of the infrastructure here. I believe that we've always had incredible arts administrators. We've always had incredible art makers and world-class audiences to experience mm -hmm. the art. So the very DNA of world-class has always been a part of our history. What we did not always have were the resources yeah. to elevate production to match the innovation and the creativity and the entrepreneurship of our artists and our audiences and our arts administrators. And so if I've done anything, it is just to claim the legacy and put it front and center that has always existed, which is the pivot from community arts to world-class arts for the community. And given my extensive background in institutional leadership and fundraising, I've been able to bring that skill set to mm -hmm. um, an institution that historically has been very disinvested in. The numbers are stacked against us. In New York City alone, the city and state arts funding gives $6.26 per resident. And if you go to Fort Greene, it's $48 in arts funding from the city and state per resident. When you come to Bed-Stuy, which is just a mile away, mm -hmm. even less if you're thinking the crossover of class and avenue, which is the dividing right. line, um, it drops to $2.44. Mm. That's pretty stark. So there's Fulton Street, which runs from downtown Brooklyn, the Arts District, to Bed-Stuy, and then to East New York, Brownsville. So there's sort of a browning mm -hmm. of the community as one moves from one part of Fulton Street to the other. Yes. So it, it drops from $48 to $244 to almost zero. The browner the community gets and the more low to moderate income the, the community gets. That's not accidental. In addition, $3.2 billion are invested annually in arts institutions. 60% of that goes to the top 2% of institutions yes. in the country, all of which are serving predominantly white-led audiences. The arts that they're producing are Eurocentric, and the other 40% goes to the other 98%. 10% of that $3.2 is split among institutions of color involving the Asian American, Native American, Arab American, Native American, African American, and Latinx communities. And so if you add even the filter of social justice, it drops to 4%. So in terms of who we are as an institution, a Black-led institution that is devoted to the stories of people of African descent, that we're going to tell those stories for us, by us, about us, and certainly near us, and that we historically not only have been Black-led, but we also have had social justice at the very core. It is the kiln 
from which we were fired. Our DNA comes from the very depths of revolution. It comes from the very depths of radicalism, black nationalism, the black arts movement, the civil rights movement, the black power movement is in the very DNA of our institution before the, the idea notion of social justice became what it is now because it's it's creating something that is entering the mainstream through branding. It's something that has been popularized via the funding world who is now funding social justice. Hence, a lot of institutions are adopting social justice practices mm -hmm. without making changes to ensure social justice. To answer your question, I hope, um, the audience has doubled from 40,000 to 82,000, so mm -hmm. you're spot on in the last three and a half years with your numbers. And what our audience has, has merely done is responded to what I feel is a very authentic narrative that we are here to tell the stories of people of African descent with the greatest level of complexity and intersectionality that we can muster, that as a community we have been very challenged to be progressive mm -hmm. around all areas of identity. While we've been very progressive as a Black community around areas of race, we've been less progressive around areas of gender mm -hmm. and the empowerment of women. And we've been less progressive around sexual orientation Absolutely. and religion and even class. This is a moment for me to be sure as the curator, the person who gets to decide which stories are told and by whom, that I am reflecting the stories of our queer audience and our trans audience and our Muslim audience and our young audience and our older audience and audiences struggling with Alzheimer's or audiences struggling with homelessness or audience members struggling with the HIV AIDS epidemic that is still very much a growing epidemic mm -hmm. in the black community, particularly among black men. And so I counted probably the deepest honor of my life to be able to do this and work. I'm smiling because we can hear the set being built in the background. <laughs> uh, do you want to talk just for a moment about the upcoming production and maybe share one or two of the works that you think you are most proud of from your tenure? Yes. And thank you for letting me talk about these things. We're launching a festival entitled New Windows. And New Windows feels very brave and daring in the framing of Black arts in the Black theater. And it's because for the first time in 47 years, the Billie Holiday Theater will be curating artists of non-African descent. Mm -hmm. We are pairing them with artists of African descent, and we are moving what has been an historical uh, intra-racial conversation into an interracial conversation. Mm -hmm. We have a white male playwright who's written a piece called Reparations that puts a black male at the center of a conversation that involves the Me Too movement, it involves racial justice, it involves a lot of global questioning and how we think about race from different points of view globally. We also have a visual artist who's very iconoclastic in her work, Uba Lukova, who is absolutely astounding. And she's bringing these huge life-size social justice posters that have been all over the world. She's a Bulgarian artist. And then there's a Russian designer who's been working with communities of African descent across the globe mm. around social entrepreneurship and how she uses her privilege to bring 
Um, she doesn't check her privilege. She's using her privilege to illuminate the plight and create opportunities for communities that are mainly of African descent. So we've brought these artists together and we've paired them with extraordinary uh, human beings. Michelle Shea mm -hmm. is directing Reparations, the Tony Award-nominated brilliant um, actress and director. Um, Hollis King, our creative director, but also the former creative director of Sony Universal's mm -hmm. Verve, and just really opening the conversation, and as we think, opening new windows to allow ourselves as an institution and our community to expand the notions of what a vibrant, thriving, and dynamic conversation around race needs to be in the 21st century to move mm -hmm. the conversation forward nationally. It feels very brave and daring. There are times where it feels like um, people make some pretty fast assumptions about what that means. Mm -hmm. Other times it feels like people are sitting with it and thinking about it, which is really more mm -hmm. of what I'm hopeful for is that it allows us as a community to be introduced to new artists. It also allows us to expand our notions of social justice and what it means more from a global point of view, um, given, given that the world is just getting smaller and smaller. And so I'm, I'm very proud of that. To ask me how it's going, I'm not sure. We're right in the <laughs> middle of it. Um, I have felt some resistance. I have heard some resistance. I've received some resistance to it, and I expected it, and I'm absolutely okay with that. I believe very profoundly in disruptions and disruptive methodologies. I do believe that doing the same thing year after year after year after year and it's not working structurally mm -hmm. is uh, the very definition of insanity. And so we are opening up our conversation around race as an institution. And, and another important point is in some ways we have seeded that conversation to white institutions yes that we have a 400-year history of leading the conversation around race and race identity and race politics from the very first slave testimonies that were built or written, illegally written, because we weren't legally allowed to learn to read or write, to our abolitionist movements, to the work of Frederick Douglass and Sojourner, um, truth all the way to our, you know, our revolt around Jim Crow when six million people voted with their feet and fled a terrorist South and we had a migration that was great to our Harlem Renaissance, which in fact was a revolutionary radical movement, arts movement, to our civil rights and our Black Lives Matter movement. And we are at the forefront of racial conversation and racial dialogue, and yet interracial dialogues have now sort of become proprietary to white-led institutions where people of all walks of life are a part of them. I am not willing to see those conversations given our history to white-led institutions. In addition to New Windows, I'm very proud of the work of 50 and 50. Yes, please speak about that. When I came to the Billie Holiday Theater, it was fascinating to me because my work, other than with Ernie, I would say would be couched within American arts and culture and American theater as we sort of define things, meaning that I was always curating across racial lines. I was always curating, of course, from my centrism of being a black female, 
a straight black female. That's the point of view that I brought to the table, but always trying to fold the LGBTQIA voices into that, to fold younger voices at that, you know, in my younger years, it was older voices, voices that represented different ethnicities and nationalities and racial groups and how, and, and class and education and all of the ways in which we self-identify and are identified to, to play with pluralism. Pluralism is yes. something that I've always been very interested in from teaching it as courses when I was in the academy. Mm-hmm. Very interested in this great democratic experiment of pluralism that we're still all figuring out. And I, um, I was a bit surprised coming into the black theater at not surprised, but affirmed in that it aligned with the rest of black history mm. that tended to yes. have a very patriarchal bend to it, have mm. a very, very patriarchal tone and sometimes misogynistic tone yeah. to it. And that our theater did not exist in a vacuum unto itself, was, but was yes. very much a part of the hold. And, and that the 2017 renovation, part of what I did when I came in was to take the theater through a, a renovation. Yes. So that we could, so that a world class space could match a world class vision. When this theater relaunched, we were, uh, I always say we, meaning me and my team, but I'm grateful that my team trust my vision. I'm grateful that they buy into it, that they believe in it, but it had to be woman centric. It just had to be. Mm -hmm. And so 50 and 50 launched from the relaunch and asking ourselves how do we put women at the at the fore when we come back out of the gate how do we ensure that it's in the very dna and the foundation of the new billy holiday theater and so we celebrated lynn nottichu in interestingly enough the same month that month that we were relaunching she was receiving her second pulitzer prize Right. And her very first theater experience was at the Billie Holiday Theater. Her mother, Ruby, who was a community activist in Brooklyn and Bed-Stuy, brought her to the Billy, and as a child, she saw theater here. So that was just a beautiful full-circle moment of women who have been very much a part mm-hmm. of Black theater history and the Billy history. Um, we launched with Zora Neale Hurston's Their Eyes Were Watching right. God, and then 50 and 50. Can you speak to what 50 and 50 is? Yes. 50 and 50 is a call. It's a movement. It's a revolution where we ask women to tell us their stories. We don't say monologues. We don't say dialogues. Because if you're not in the theater, you may think that's not for you. Mm -hmm. So we just say, tell us your stories. We give them a word limit. And then the incredible MacArthur genius, really a genius, really, really, really a genius, Dominique Morisot, who's now a Tony Award nominated genius she does a curatorial statement for us so i'll say to her you know here's what i'd like to talk about this time dominique and then she makes it into something so magical and so compelling and the first year we felt we were hoping for 50 stories and i went to my bookshelf and i pulled i had a stack of books because i wasn't sure if we if we didn't get to 50 I could see if we could pull from a Sonia Sanchez yeah. and we could pull from a Gloria Naylor and just to subsidize, we got 221 stories from across the world, Holland, South Africa, the UK, parts of uh, throughout Africa and all across the nation age, ages eight to 83. Mm. 
And so we had to read all 221 of them. And each year now we've gotten over 200 stories again from women from across the world who are responding to the curatorial statement. And they're responding with the kind of diversity and complexity that we all experience in our everyday lives as we live in this place called America and as we travel across the globe, mm -hmm. that we as black women are as diverse as the numbers in a room. If there are 100 black women in a room, there are 100 unique ways of expressing that mm -hmm. blackness and that womanhood. And so we then tap renowned actresses to read it, and it's becoming easier and easier to get these women because it's now, they come to me making sure that I book them for it. They love it. It's a reunion of the women every mm -hmm. year. They and love being so together. powerful. Oh. Being in, I mean, not even as a woman of color, but being present, even hearing just a few of the stories from this past year and experiencing the joy and the pain and the love yes. from these actresses just floating off the stage through the words of others is truly remarkable it's really an awesome contribution to our american yeah. canon and you were you were at the reading of the at the national black at yes. the national black theater festival mm -hmm. yes yeah. that to was... a packed room of people who laughed and wept and were still speaking about pieces two days later and that was really special for us. It was a remarkable experience it was really special because we'd always presented it in new york and it doesn't mean audiences change from one region to the other, but they do. And we heard, we heard a different type of response to some of the stories. And it was really quite um, profound for me because I, I got to hear the stories very differently. I was, I was raised in the South. Mm. I grew up in Virginia. I was born in Washington, D.C. I've lived my adult life in New York uh, from you know the mid-20s and I've lived across the world in my adult life and so coming back to a southern space mm. and tackling issues where we introduce a transgender woman telling her story and we introduce domestic violence and some of the patriarchy that women still suffer under um, we know that in more um, conventional regions and in the Bible Belt, those are, those are some practices that sometimes are statistically heightened in those regions. And so, and there still seems to be a lot of shaming that happens in certain parts of our country still, in our more conservative states around the LGBTQIA community. Absolutely. So it was really, it, it really was wonderful. Um, there was something really important that I, I felt like a number of people were able to celebrate, which was that on a physical land where black women's voices had been silenced for so long yeah. to, to bring them to voice yeah. was so moving. And I have to ask you, what was the experience of seeing your daughter perform some of those stories? You know, I'm in love with that human being. She she's is wonderful. She's one of the most incredible human beings I've ever met. And I know I birthed her, but I also try to respect her as her own human being who's becoming. And I don't know that she's who she is because of me. It's more that she's who she is because I protected 
and pushed any forces away that would not allow her to become who she was destined to become. And watching her on the stage was very humbling to read Audre Lorde with these other women. You know, she's a force of nature unto herself. She's a quiet storm and a real force of nature and is the inspiration, probably the biggest inspiration for why I have done the work I've done. She was with me when I went to Ethiopia to live as a Fulbright scholar, working with refugee Somali women and girls, and she was five months old, and she was with me. She's been doing this work her and whole life. And she's been doing this work her whole life. It's in the very DNA of who she is. She's a very humble spirit. She's a... Uh, and she's gracious and she's funny. She's very gracious. And she adores you, and it's obvious. Well, she's she's here to change the world, and I just would tell the world to watch out. She is about to launch. She's uh, in her senior year of high school, and she's about to take on the world that she hasn't already started to take on. Well, and I would say there that she's following in your footsteps. Um, we are very much out of time. <laughs> so oh, I want to end with a question that I um, ask of everyone. I'm, I'm building our own collective canon, and I'm curious if there is one black play that you would recommend to a young learner, what would it be? To a, to a young learner, a young, a person, oh. any young person that is coming into black theater, if there was one play you could recommend, or to those of us who have been in it for years and are looking to build our roster. Cheryl West, Before It Hits Home. You're not the first person to say that. <laughs> Excellent. Well, Indira, thank you so much. That was our interview with Dr. Indira Edwaru, the woman behind the great work at Restoration Art and the Billie Holiday Theater. This is the Black Theater History Podcast. I'm KB Sane. Thanks for sticking with us as we figured out the best ways to move forward with the podcast. You'll notice that our episodes are now up to 45 minutes in length, and we are thrilled to welcome our editor, SB Studios. I know that you can all tell that I'm no longer editing this in my study by myself, so thank you. Thanks also to the crew of James Sheldon's Reparations for their graciousness and assistance as we recorded this episode. As always, our music is provided by Kaya Caterhurst from her first album, Nine Pin, which can be purchased wherever fine music is sold. If you like the work we're doing here and you want to make a contribution to support the podcast, or for more information about episode commissions and sponsorship, reach out to us at blacktheaterhistory.com. The podcast is produced by Equity Justice Productions. You, our listeners, also make the podcast possible. Make sure you subscribe to the Black Theater History Podcast on iTunes, and please take a moment to review us there. Your feedback will help us get this podcast in front of other folks who will enjoy it. You can find us on our Facebook page, Black Theater History Podcast, or follow us on Twitter at Black Theater Pod. That's theater with an R-E. We're all in this together, friends, and we've got a lot more to learn. Thanks for listening. Symbol.